Social Strategy Podcast, episode 46. Welcome to the Social Strategy Podcast, where it's all about making the most of your business with smart tips on what's working now in social media, online business, and good old-fashioned networking. And now your host, who's also known as Ross PR on Twitter, Vernon Ross. Hey, what's going on, everyone? I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. So had a local author on, good friend of mine, really happy for him. He's got his first book published, and it's actually a pretty awesome read. I've read through it, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. Really quickly, I wanted to remind you guys, use a hashtag, 10 Days of Linda, 10 Days of Linda, the number 10. Lynda.com is giving you guys 10 days free trial for the Social Strategy Podcast listeners. Just go out to lynda.com forward slash Ross for a 10-day free trial. I'll tell you guys more about it at the end of the episode. So let's get right into it, and I'll see you guys on the back end. Hey everyone, this is Vernon Ross and welcome to the Social Strategy Podcast, bringing you the best in online business, social media, and good old-fashioned networking. And today is a treat for me because it's not, well, I can't say that it's not often. I actually often get to talk to really good friends on my podcast about what they're doing and about their latest work. And the podcast has sort of been a launching platform for books here lately. You guys may remember Patrice Washington is launching her book on the 27th of this month, a Real Money Answers book. And I've got another author who happens to be a good friend of mine. I guess I should get my book done sometime soon. He's a marketing director at Caldi's Coffee. He's got an extensive background in social media and a really roundabout way that he came into the whole field of social media that we're going to get into into the show. He's currently an author and a thought leader in social media, and he's got a new book, and it's called Happy Work, which to me, I don't know how I feel about it because if you embrace what it's saying about organizations, it's an interesting take on it, and it really makes you shift the paradigm for how you think about work. So I'm really looking to get forward into this interview. Chris, welcome to the show. You don't know how you feel about it, huh? This is a suspicious introduction. I'm doing well, though. How are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing good, man. You, well, you know, happy work, it's a business parable about the journey to teamwork, profit, and purpose. So the surface of it, it sounds great. But, you know, there's so much out there right now about, hey, go off, do your own thing, be independent, you know, screw your job and everything that those horrible people are trying to do to you and press you down. But you took a different approach. And I I like the fact that you took a different approach, but it took me a minute to wrap my head around, wait a minute, the paradigms could change. Maybe this is a way, another way of looking at it, because not everyone is necessarily thinking about going off and doing their own thing. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is, um, you know, the notion of, you know, people are always, you know, going and getting new jobs. I think is, you know, the grass is going to be greener, and you know, there is another option. You know, is to give your best shot at turning your own grass green. You know, the place where you're at right now, and it's not a matter necessarily of just showing loyalty, but you know, if you've got a if you have a decent job, but you're struggling through some things, I mean, I'll be honest, Vernon, I used to leave those jobs, you know, and, and my dad would look at me and say, you know, where's your loyalty? And I'm like, well, those days have kind of passed, right? But I think what he was really getting at is, you know, are you are you giving this your best shot? And sometimes I wasn't, you know, and now, you know, as I've grown older, 
I've thought about it and I try to give it my best shot, you know, and, you know, not all places are going to be for all people, but I think you're right to say that I tried to take a different tact in this book. Um, the one way that it's definitely different is, you know, I didn't choose sides. So I did, I didn't write like a populist book, you know, where management's, you know, got their foot on our neck and I didn't write a book for, you know, entrepreneurs on, you know, how to, you know, make a million dollars by your third, you know, by the time you're 30 and, you know, how to, control your workforce and stuff like that, you know, my point is that, you know, we're typically when we join a company from management all the way down to entry-level worker, I mean, we're all in it together. So if a company's not doing well, it's not just one side's fault, typically. Uh, and so I, I felt like putting together a book where, you know, we give basically more or less give responsibilities to everyone in the organization uh, and then challenge them to, you know, work together to the very, you know, best of their ability, I felt like was honestly how the real world works. And so if it's, if that makes it a more difficult read because people are like, well, I am one of the entry level workers. What am I supposed to do next? You know, it's, I don't necessarily want to spoon feed you the answer, but I, I, and I love what you've been doing lately with mindset because that's the, that's, that was the, one of the most important things I wanted to do with the book is change people's mindset about work and how work fits into their own lives. And so um, if we can do that, uh, you know, think about it. There's so many external pressures that are on businesses, uh, so many threats from competitors and regulation and shift in, you know, markets and things like that. We should eliminate as many of the you know, inside challenges that there are as possible. So, you know, make it easy to do great work, have a desire to do great work, but make it easy, create a type of organization where it's easy to do great work. Then we can go face those external pressures, you know, with as much strength as we can possibly muster instead of wasting it on fighting with each other, passive aggressive with each other, all the, you know, (laughs) you know, fighting for promotions and, you know, right. sabotage, sabotaging other people's work and yelling at people and, you know, throwing things at them as, as happens in my book. So that has um, happened in real life. I suppose it has, you know, it's funny too, of the stories in, in the book, lots of them, uh, you know, have some truth to that, whether they happen to me or someone else, uh, sneak preview in my book, there is sort of a jerk that launches a phone at someone. And I actually did, pretty much make that one up. That's like one of the things that I made up. And then here you are to tell me that stuff like that really does happen. I had a, I had a guy, a scientist, I, I will leave him nameless to protect the guilty, but um, he launched his laptop at me because he was pissed off that it was broken. And it was broken because he dropped it. But he wanted us to have replaced it quicker than we were getting to him because he was highly paid and he made a lot of money for the company and he was upset that no one would come out to his house and swap it out for him. So he like literally launches the thing across the desk, like slides it aggressively, basically not, you know, like through it. And it was continuing to pick up speed and I'm at the end of the table and I just moved. So it hit the floor. And he goes, what are you doing? I'm like, well, what are you doing? You just threw it at me. I moved out the way. He goes, I was just sliding it over to you. And you now it's broken. I was like, it was already broken because you dropped it. And it was just, it was weird. I, n- I never, years ago, but I had never experienced anything like that. I didn't know how to react to it. Neither did my boss. Neither did his boss. So we all just kind of didn't talk about it. But it it was a really tense environment anytime anyone had to deal with them, and so nobody wanted to deal with them. Now, it, what's what's really fascinating about 
you know, that story, obviously, is, you know, there's, we've all worked with people like that, you know, with varying degrees of whether it be physical aggression or mental aggression or a little mixture of both, if you happen to be lucky. Uh, you know, what's funny about this is how well you remember it. There's probably so much about that job that, you know, oh, yeah. for, your, for your brain is a complete throwaway. But yeah. that is something you remember. And, you know, it's one of the things I kind of learned when I was writing the book is how much, how much more powerful negativity can actually be. I don't, I'm not trying to be a downer about it, but how much more powerful negativity can be than positivity for us, you know? So like, for instance, with this book of mine, I'm going to have my wife look through the Amazon reviews and I'm going to have her pick out some of the four and five star ones. I think I'm going to have her read them to me and I'm not going to look. She will have to internalize the one star reviews. I'm not going to do it because I, I, I can't risk being in terrible mental shape as I try to launch the book. And all you need is one person to just tear you apart with awful negativity. And there's hardly a darn thing you can do about it to pull yourself out of it. Like it, It's nearly impossible to fend off. And so, you know, that guy, that guy, once he threw that across, man, that was like, that was hardwired into your memory. Oh yeah. I'll never forget his name or what he looks like. And it's, it's just one of those people that it's like, really? This is uh this is interesting. Thank you for becoming a permanent spot in my memory. But uh, let, let's step back a little bit because we kind of got right into the content of the book. I, I think I want to give people a little bit of background on how you got to this point and you know where you started from. You've not always been a social media thought leader and author and speaker, and you haven't always done this. You didn't kind of like come out of college, MBA right into, you know, worked into a management job very quickly. This was something that it was a journey for you. Give me, give me a little bit of background about how you got into social media. Cause it's a very interesting story. 20 years ago, I graduated 20, almost 21 years ago. I graduated from Marquette university up in Milwaukee with a degree in accounting. And so, uh, I pretty much knew I was going to be an accountant. I declared my major, you know, first semester of freshman year. So uh, compared to the other confused people who might have switched multiple times or never declared, uh, I declared right away. Uh, that, that, that felt like I had conviction at the time. In retrospect, I might have, uh, <laughs> it's possible uh, they might have been onto something. But, um, you know, it's one of those things I wouldn't change. It's made me who I am today. But uh, after graduating from Marquette, I became a CPA. So I passed the CPA exam, one of the most difficult professional exams there is, and started, you know, doing my CPA thing. And so, you know, I did that from basically the mid-90s till, you know, well, until my last accounting job ended, which was in 2010, I guess it was. But, you know, as I worked some of those accounting jobs, you know, over the years, I just... I don't know. It was hard to it was hard to put my finger on it because if I had, I might have somehow left earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... It just, I don't know if I was built to do that. It doesn't mean I was a poor accountant. You know, there are certainly better accountants than me. You know, at the time when I was taking the CPA exam, I was uh, roommates with this awesome guy. And, you know, he passed all four parts of the exam the first time. It took me two times. So that's still good because some people yeah, never pass. It's still not bad. <laughs> some people never pass it. But I wasn't like super genius guy like he was. And so he's still an accountant and I'm not. So there you go. But um, so, you know, I was... There were just there were times of unhappiness. Now, you know, what's notable about that is like all of us have had 
bad jobs before. I mean, all of us have struggled. All of us have worked with one knucklehead where you just have no idea what makes them tick, and it frankly confounds you. Uh, and it frustrates you about humanity when you work with someone like that. And it doubly frustrates you that you can't understand why they're like that. It just makes no sense. And as human beings, we like things to make sense. So I, I was unhappy at some of these jobs. And then my final accounting job I started in 2006. And I was the CFO of a nonprofit here in St. Louis. And then soon after that, I started cooking up the idea for my T-shirt business, which had been called Rizzo Tees. And so I started brainstorming about this business, and I then started building the business for real in 2007, and it debuted in 2008, and I started selling t-shirts, and I started almost immediately after the debut of the website, started using social media because... Well, the website went live. I'm like, well, how, how the hell is anybody going to know about this? Mm-hmm. You know, and I thought it was just going to be banner ads and stuff like that. And so, um, but I didn't have any money for banner ads. I was just out of cash, you know. And so, um, it was a matter of I don't want to say desperation, but I had heard about Twitter. I think I'd maybe seen it on you know, NBC Nightly News or something like that. So <laughs> I saw, I you know, I just I don't remember how I heard. I wish I did, frankly. Um, but I, you know, I joined. I joined on November fifth, two thousand eight. It was like six days after my site went live. And it, it's funny, too. Like, there are these services where you can dial back and see your first 16 tweets or whatever. And I'm very excited to note that my first six, none of my first 16 tweets mentioned the t shirt business or anything like that. I just started talking with people. You know, and I know your shows often, you know, discuss this networking. Yeah. For me, I just started chatting with people. And it was fun. You know, I'm kind of an extrovert as it is. So it was that made it that much easier, I guess. And, you know, then I started getting orders. I'm like, well, who are these people? They're total strangers. You know, and then I, like, match up their name with their Twitter account. I'm like, ah, these people I'm getting to know on Twitter are ordering. This is exactly what I wanted to happen. This is wonderful. And so, you know, I kept talking. And then every once in a while I'd have to – it was almost like I'd have to make a calendar reminder for myself to remember to tweet <laughs> about the shirts, right? You know, but it, it was working. I was selling T-shirts and I was, you know, making money at it. But the whole time I'm still – a CFO for this nonprofit. And you know, they I never like went into my boss's office and said, by the way, I've started a business on the side. It's out of my basement. It's called Rizzo Teas. Most of the teas are pretty tasteful. There's one or two that are a little irreverent. But just wanted you to know that I've done this. And then I'm also on Twitter now and people seem to be paying attention. And oh by the way, I'm being asked to speak every once in a while. I hope you don't mind. And right. this is just a personal pursuit. You know, think nothing of it. I didn't go and talk to them about that. It's personal pursuit. It didn't seem like it, you know, would mean anything to them. It was funny as I started marching towards 2010, the t-shirt business is getting more popular and I'm being asked to speak about social media. And I remember one of the first times I spoke in public, you know, using my real first and last name (laughs) with regard to social media. (laughs) And I say that because again, they did not know that I was doing any, any of this was uh, David Seitman Garland. He used to have these lunches in here in St. Louis uh, called, I think they're called Rise Lunches or something like that. And so yeah, I went Rise Lunch. Yeah, I remember those. They were good. They were at the now defunct Araka restaurant typically, and I loved going to them. And, you know, I remember giving a talk on social media. So here's the real interesting thing that hopefully would be notable for your listeners. Uh, when I was freshman year in college, they made us take a public speaking course, and I hated it. Because I hated speaking in front of people. It was so nerve-wracking. 
I don't, and it's funny. I don't know why now. I guess it was just a common stage fright. You're worried yeah. if people are going to like laugh at you or think you're stupid or whatever. And by the time I was at that lunch that day, one of the first public speaking gigs I pretty much had ever had. I remember I was sitting at the round table near the front and Greg Busman, a friend of mine here in St. Louis, was sitting next to me. And he kind of like jokingly nudged me on the arm. He's like, you nervous? <laughs> and I was like, I looked at him with like this oh, how really, horrible. <laughs> no, and I, no, no, no. I looked at him with this really dumb look on my face. Like, I can't believe this is happening. I looked at him. I said, no, I'm not. And it was at that very moment that I realized something's about to change for the big, for the big time, because I wasn't nervous. It really spoke to me. I was about to get up in front of a bunch of people who were already in the marketing game or owned businesses. So they were doing the thing I really wanted to do. I didn't want to go back to my CFO job later that day. I mean, that, that part of the day was my favorite part of the day speaking. It spoke to me that I wasn't nervous. And what that said to me was, you might have found something here that means more to you than that job that you don't want to go back to in a little while. And, you know, without going into the details about why I didn't like the job, it was a mixture of personnel there plus the fact that it was accounting, which was the thing that I was finally after 17, 18, 19 years was finally coming around to the fact that maybe this wasn't for me. But um, (laughs) so I'm a slow learner. But you know, that day uh, it was, was, was just fascinating to me. And so I kept speaking, you know, I, I kept taking the gigs and so, I thought, well, so let, let, me, let me stop you there for a please. second, because I think what you said is interesting is that you realize you weren't nervous. You enjoy the process and you enjoy the fact that you were getting in the opportunity to speak. What made you continue doing it? Because even though the, the, the shift sometimes happens, most people will bag off of the shift and they're like, that was fun, but it's not real. What's real is the 17 plus years I've put into this career. When do you actually make the shift? What made you continue and do the next thing? That is a really good question. And I just jotted down the answer so I wouldn't forget my two part answer. <laughs> uh, number one was frankly, just being asked again. So I really didn't seek speaking opportunities. They found me. And to be clear to your listeners, like none of these were paying engagements. These were just, you know, come speak to, like I was on the social media club panel early. I did the rise lunch thing. There were some other ones, you know, I forget the specifics, but just being asked by people at that point for me was a confidence builder. Like, Mm -hmm. this is great. You know, if I'm going to move in this direction, you know, and at some point muster up the courage to go talk to my wife and say, hey, I think I'm ready for a career change. You know, what do you think? <laughs> uh, it's, you know, I'm definitely adding uncertainty uh, to our lives versus uh, removing it. Being asked the, was just that started to like make me feel good. It started validating my own feelings, you know, about wanting to maybe change careers. And the second one, the second thing that, you know, had me continue to do it was what people would say to me after I was done speaking. So there was once or twice where, you know, I spoke about different topics too. So I spoke about, you know, I spoke about social media, you know, the do's and don'ts of Twitter, which is funny, like six years later, you could still go do a great presentation on how like not to do a 
how to avoid doing a bad tweet. You know what I mean? Like people are <laughs> right. still like, it's just funny. We just haven't quite learned how to communicate well with other human beings yet. And so we're still putting out like really tweets in really poor taste. Like it's just like the gift that keeps on giving the speakers, I guess is <laughs> what Scott Stratton would say, I think. Um, but, uh, I would speak about also I'd speak about career change. So once I had made the switch and left the accounting firm to go work for uh, a, a small agency in town, I wasn't there for terribly long before moving to my permanent agency job at Falk Harrison, I, I spoke about career change. And so I would talk to people about like how I did it and what it felt like and the way that I networked and things like that. And I'd say, thank you very much. And they'd clap. And then I'd walk down off the stage and people would approach the stage and they were standing around me. And so, you know, it was kind of like, like here in the United States, when we stand in line, we usually like one person behind the other and lines over in Europe are like a crush of people that they don't stand in lines in Europe. They just, <laughs> and it freaked my wife out. She's like, oh, there's people everywhere, you know, and that's just how they do it. They push and shove a little bit until they get to the front. And so it was like a European line. There was one time, I remember, there was like 20 people there. And I'm like, well, this is rather notable and strange. And this is great. I'm not in a hurry. I'm going to stand here and talk to all 20 of these people. And I remember this woman came up and she's like, that was so, she looked at me. I think she might even have grabbed my like forearm, you know, and she was like, <laughs> that, that was so inspiring. You know, and I like the classic Three Stooges joke. I looked behind me. I was like, who came in? What are you talking about? You know, and. I was like, what, what was inspiring? Tell, like, tell me what I did. And she's like, well, you just, you know, that she's like, I have a job right now. I just don't really like, and you know, it's funny. I'm sitting up there happy at my new job and I'm looking out at everyone and I project that onto everyone. I'm like, well, everyone here must just be happy. You know, when she comes up and says, I'm going through a lot of pain right now. And I was like, well, what kind of pain? If, you know, if you don't mind me prying a little bit and she would tell me and I said, okay, well, here's my card. If you ever want to chat about it, you know, just let me know. And then someone else came up and said, that was a great talk. You know, that was really inspiring. I'm like, what do you, did they serve alcohol at this event? Like what's happening here? And then I realized that yes, the words that I have to say are inspiring other people. Vernon, I never inspired anyone as an accountant. Let's just be clear about that. And no offense to my brothers in accounting, but there is nothing inspiring about balancing the books and things that this is. So I'll tell you what, when people started using that word inspired, I thought, me? I'm going to go do this again. Oh, it, yeah, that's awesome. I, it felt good. It felt good. It felt good to contribute to others. And so I just kept doing it. And the other thing that was interesting, too, is, you know, it, it was a great vehicle to meet people, too. And so being whatever you'd call a people person or an extrovert or whatever, I mean, you know, like I got to – where did I meet you? Did I meet you at the Gary Vaynerchuk thing at World Market? Was that the first time I ever met you? That was the first time we ever met. <laughs> yeah, that was the, yeah, it was. yeah, it seems like it was because Arlene from Robust was there too. And, you know, right. then I'd go and hang out with Gary Vaynerchuk. That was the first time I'd ever got to, you know, hang with him in person, you know, which it was itself like a pretty cool event, but it, it was a great way to meet other people, you know, and it was interesting. Like it was, it was a great lesson to have that woman come up and say, I'm having a hard time at work. Cause like until that time, all I was thinking about was my own happiness and it was actually pretty interesting to consider what other people are going through. And you can kind of see where this is going because, yeah. you know, it eventually made me think, huh, there's a lot of people unhappy at their jobs. Like, I don't even think I need to hear a statistic or a poll about this. I just have people, like, people just kept coming up and emailing me and writing me and s talking to me in person saying I didn't like their job. And I thought, huh, I guess I'm not the only one. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, it's it's an interesting uh, path that you took to it because you, you give a lot of value in social media and you were doing that then. And because you were giving value in social media, people value what you had to say. And just like with this book, it's a parable and you have to you have to really you have to read it to get into it. And it, t- it took me a minute. I, the first attempt at reading it, I'm like, oh, OK, it's a business parable. I'll, I'll skim through it and pick out some good points to talk about. And I mean, this is when like you first gave me the the like the pre-work copy. Yeah. And then I sat down. I'm like, OK, let me like sit down and like get into this story. And it's a really interesting story. And it it's like a mirror of almost any work environment that you can imagine with all the types of different characters that you run into yes. in a work environment and the different situations. And it's like, Oh wow, this is, this is, this is a little cathartic <laughs> reading this. That, oh, I'm glad to hear that. You know, not only do you outline these weird situations that happen at work, but there is a solution to it in the back. It's not, you know, happy works, not just about the horribleness of work. It's about, what it is and then how to clean that up and how organizations and the employees that work at the organizations can both be vested in a solution that gets you basically further towards enjoying where you are since you have to spend so much time there. That was, and that's a great thing to, to talk about first, I guess, was the one thing that I always had noted is how much time we actually spend at work. Like it's, it's a lot of hours, you know, and so this is not a book with, like, footnotes and bibliography and stuff. It's a parable. It's kind of actually a story. So it's more like real fiction versus a parable. I'm not sure why we called it a parable. That might have been a slight mistake, which is really bad because it's printed on thousands of books now. But um, <laughs> it's a business story, if you were. But, um, you know, I like what you said about solution because, yeah, you know, I definitely, just for purposes of getting my point across, I definitely, how can I say this, pumped up the action a little bit in the book. So right. if, if there is a place this bad, you know, we should train a couple of uh, unmanned drones on it right now because you would not, <laughs> because you would not, you would not want to work at this place, right? And what's funny is too, is like I've given this book to some people and they told me stories. I'm like, oh, that's worse than any single thing that happened in my book. Maybe this isn't the worst place in the world to work, you know, my fictitious business. So uh, it, it's funny, like real, real life can, and I've been saying this to people, they're like, where did you come up with all these stories? I'm like, well, they're all real because real life trumped my imagination every single time. Like every time I'm like, hmm, how can I make this character just 10% more evil? I'm like, I'm all out of ideas. So I would just go and ask people online and they would tell a story about something. And I'm like, oh, God, that's awful <laughs> that I would just like incorporate it into the story and it, it would work. So um, I liked what you said, too, about the idea of the, the solutions and back, you know, and it's a set of solutions. It's not the solution. Right. So I think what what I've what I've found is I talk about this book with people, and, you know, present the idea that I have the mindset, if you were, of creating workplaces that are happy to the point where I kind of want to shock the system and say that. I'd like for us to have a new number one priority and that be happiness at work. What ends up happening is you find people who, how can I put this? They're not terribly good at arguing. And so what they'll say is that they, they basically, they, they terribly suffer from one dimensional thinking. They'll be like, Oh, wait, wait, what do you mean? We're going to stop worrying about profits. Oh, you know, 
leftists, socialists, and all this stuff. Like, no, no, man, of course <laughs> not, man. We're not going to stop making money. No, no, no. That's We're going to keep raising prices or lowering prices. We're going to keep doing great new innovative pricing structures. We're still going to implement just-in-time inventory systems. We're going to open new stores. We're going to move into new regions. We're going to close ones that are unprofitable. Those are all tactics. You know, and this will dovetail well into a discussion of social media, too, because social media can often, the discussion about social media can be so tactical, you know, versus mindset. We have all those tactics with regard to making our businesses better available to us at all times. What don't we always have? It's happiness. Happiness and fulfillment and joy. That's, in fact, according to statistics, 70 to 80% of the time, that's missing. Yeah. That's, that's, exactly. a, human, that's a human tragedy. Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't think human beings at work can, should be deemed an accept, acceptable losses or collateral damage, you know, or whatever. No, like, no, our, our lives really are too short, you know, to use that old hackneyed phrase. So, no, it's no, I, I think it's time. And I feel I feel slightly vindicated in seeing, you know, more and more stories about this, you know, and, yeah. you know, like Harvard Business Review and like places of, you know, relative respect, you know, that. People are starting to think, okay, my entire life is what software engineers might call a user experience. Let's fit some things into our lives so that we can have a great user experience. So one, let's pick a good husband or wife. Okay, we don't always do great at that, but we try at least. Let's have kids or not, depending on what sort of life we want to live. Let's you can't really pick your family. You can kind of choose how often you want to see them, maybe. <laughs> uh, you can sort of curate your existence in that way, get out of there in a half hour instead of an hour, whatever. Right. You can choose your personal pursuits, what kind of hobbies you want to do, and you can definitely choose your friends. What's interesting, though, is we don't often choose our work family, for starters. We go take a job because it seems like the right job, or we frankly just need the money. And you're immediately thrust into a family, and most of the people are not like you. And you did not choose to join that family. You just took a position at the company. And so what happens is like all those things I mentioned before I mentioned the job are things where we take those things pretty seriously. Like we try hard. But when it comes to jobs, people just shrug their shoulders and say, well, what do you mean enjoy my job? It's just a job. I'm lucky to have a job. Yeah, I'm lucky to have a job. Yeah, I actually post about this online and someone – frankly, who was unemployed said, I would love to have a job where someone yells at me all day. At least I'd have a job. And I was like, I can't argue against you. You have a different perspective than me. So I hear what you're saying. Trust me, once you get there and you, those, those direct deposits start hitting, you're going to start feeling a little bit richer and you're not going to want to be yelled at anymore. <laughs> right. So what's interesting is like we don't obsess over the work part of that user experience. We just shrug our shoulders and say, it's just a job. Like it's who enjoys their job? Well, I want to. Like, I'm, it's, I'm drawing a line in the sand. I want to enjoy my job. I want work to fit into my life instead of it being the other way around. And if we can get to a point where we change enough mindsets, we're going to be building companies that we can bring in, we can adopt new family members into the company that is already as happy a place as possible. You know, it doesn't mean we're not going to have conflict. We can disagree with each other without being disagreeable. You know, if you've got 20 locations and it's time to open 21 and half the people agree and half the people disagree, 
Like, sit down and have a robust debate about it, but, you know, don't call people names, don't throw people under the bus, just have an honest debate about it. So it's, conflict is fine. There's, you would agree there's probably a good conflict and bad conflict. So, you know, for me, I'm trying to get people to understand that, you know, and this is no knock on employers. You know, thanks for hiring us. Thanks for paying us. Thanks for making sure the check's clear. You know, that's all important. But we need to make sure that work, and this goes for entrepreneurs too. I mean, even though you're like starting a business and you're probably going to work more hours, you know, than, than maybe the average person, it probably should still fit into your life, you know. And if it doesn't fit in well, that's where bad things happen, like children who barely got parented or divorces or, you know, things like that. It's it's pretty hard to s- snuggle up to a pile of money at the end of the day, right? right. And, what's re- and what's really funny, too, is like, you know, the old adage, you know, no one on their deathbed ever said, oh, I wish I had worked more. Like, you, if you polled Americans, like, <laughs> ni- 99% of people would agree with that. But we don't agree with it until we're almost dead. Until then, we were just, we roll the dice on all this other stuff. And by the time we get to the end, we're like, crap, I wish I had spent more time with my family. Like, how many times do we have to hear that story before it starts sinking in and we start acting in a different way during our most productive years? Right. Why do you think employers aren't more keen to that with, with, their, um, with their expectations for employees and, and why they expect employees to give so much? I think it's, it's interesting – I know I just asked you a question and now I'm making a statement, but I think it's interesting <laughs> that it's your show, dude, that, uh, you know, <laughs> on, on page 162, there, there's something I thought was, was interesting and it's number 12 for people, you know, you get the book, go to page 162, number 12. I'll keep in mind that my employees may not be as excited about the organization as I am. This is natural as this business is my dream and not necessarily theirs. I think most employers in like upper management that may be vested in the business just don't get that. Is, is that the answer to that question? Well, here, let me ask you a question. Let me answer a question with the question. Should they get it? Do we want them to get it? Would their business be better off if they got it? This is just my advice to them to help them understand because what happens is if they don't get it, if they don't understand that, if they feel like, you know, the, this is really funny too. Part of, this was kind of also born out of my consulting days, where you know I'd be on a pitch and someone would say, like a, to to challenge us. You know, they would say, "Are you going to love my business as much as I do?" Like I was actually asked that one time. What, did you, what was your answer? I'm like, "Are you daft? Like it's your business. Like there's no way I could love it more. <laughs> like that would be." You, I should have my head examined if I liked it more than you, or maybe you should have your head examined. You know, like no, that's just a dumb question. Like there are no dumb questions except that one. I mean, no, like that's silly. So if we could just agree to that, like you love it a hundred percent, I love it ninety five percent. Like I'm the consultant for you. It's just this is not a matter of me loving it more than you. That's just silly. And so what what I think happens here is that well, there's a lot of things that are happening here. But like one thing would be you know. Entrepreneur starts a business, you know, and hopefully they start it for the right reasons, man. They want to build something. He or she sees a hole in the market and they want to fill it. They, 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 they realize that there's value to be added not only to their own wallets but to, you know, the community and the country and the world as a whole. And so that would be – those are all sound like great reasons to start a business. None of the other people that work there had that same dream typically. 
And so to, to expect that of them in big ways or small ways, in, in like, you know, passive aggressive ways or, you know, more upfront, like, why don't you, like, why don't you stay late too? But, you know, no, that's not the case. But if we, if as, as an employer, if you can get them to realize that, they're going to treat their people differently. You know, they're not going to wind them up and burn them out. Um, so, I, you know, for me, it was just a matter of common sense. It's just resetting expectations based on how the real world actually works. Right. You would, you would think so. I think it is partially the answer. If employers understood that and also if employees understood some of the other stuff that you've outlined, like not publicly complaining, you know, praising in public, but privately complaining about the things that you don't like. Because so all, all too often you'll hear about everything that someone doesn't like because, you, of course, you talk louder about the stuff that you hate than the, than the things that you like. Sometimes you're right. So, you know, the rule of 10, if you don't like something, you're going to go tell 10 people you don't like it. Every opportunity you get, it's, you know, back in, in my retail sales days, that was one of the things that circuit city now defunct would teach its employees is that do whatever you can to make the customer be the one that's winning. Because if they don't, they're going to go out and they're going to tell everybody that they encounter. That was pre-social media. That was pre-social media. Yeah, you so know, that was just a, yeah, that was old-fashioned word of mouth, which is clearly not dead. Your earlier question about, you know, why don't more employers, you know, act in this way? Why don't they, quite literally, just show more care for their employees? And keep in mind, for anyone listening, I flip that on its ear too, and I want employees to care more about the companies they work for. It's, so it's a two-way street here. Yeah, that you do. Because if not. That's going to make the employers feel a certain way. They're human beings too. They're made from the same stuff. They might have been trained differently. They might have come with, you know, the silver spoon in their mouth or whatever the case may be. They may be second generation, which, you know, second generation families somehow magically always ascend to the presidency. How's that? You know, I mean, <laughs> well, we get why. It's a mixture of like talent plus what you might call nepotism. But, you know, I think for some, they're very calculating. And so, they don't see an ROI to, for instance, you know, letting someone leave uh, early to go pick up a puking child at school. Like that's just not on any spreadsheet. You know, that doesn't. There's, I can't plug that into, you know, a spreadsheet and have it spit out, you know, various outcomes. You know, it's just, it's not part of their. It's just not part of the calculation. But part of it could also be too that it's just not how they're built. So, you know, one of the things I would love to see in the workplace is, is which you may have been able to tell by reading the book, is more empathy, too. It's just, like, more care for each other. You know, it's kind of like, did you ever see the movie 300? Oh, yeah. So it's kind of like the Spartan model. You know, you remember when that little, like, ogre-looking guy wanted to be part of it? And <laughs> right. I was like, oh, my God, are they really going to let him in? And I don't even remember the character's name, but he basically was just like... You know, we count on each other as Spartans. Like, we lock arms or whatever, and we've got these shields. And, like, that's how they were able to kill, like, a bazillion Persians, yeah, right? Because, because they could count on each other. It wasn't because they were, like, super ninja killers. It was because they could count on the person next to them. And once they knew that, you know, they they not only probably gained more confidence, but they were quite literally nearly undefeatable. And so, you know, that little ogre looking dude, just, you know, as much as he like had the heart, he just wasn't gonna, it just wasn't gonna work out for him, I guess. And so, you know, they understood what it meant to work together. And some 
business leaders don't think that way. And so they have found a way to get people to do what they want with other tactics, like fear, for instance. And so I talk about that a little bit in the book as well. And I've worked for people who I would say were highly intelligent human beings who are running businesses and making a lot of money. They just aren't wired to show empathy for other people. What they show empathy for is their business. And so they feel like the business needs to survive no matter what. And I would contend that most likely every single human being working in a business is more important than the business. Knowing this does not mean that the business is going to die because we've taken like the wrong attitude. Quite literally the opposite. The better we take care of each other at work, the safer we feel, the more risk we'll actually be willing to take the more interesting things we'll try and the harder we'll work for each other. So it was funny. I was having coffee with someone this morning and they were talking about the idea of they don't really want, you know, like we got into politics a little bit and he's not really interested in having like big government tell us what to do. I said, man, I don't want people telling me what to do. Who wants to be told what to do? I mean, that started in childhood. You don't want to be told what to do. I'm more interested in convincing people that – what they're about to embark on is a good idea, then they'll be bought in with their heart and it'll be much easier for them to, to get them to do what you want them to do, right? But, you know, you've got to like, they've got to have the, the heart in it. So what I talk about in this book is kind of the Spartan thing where like when you come into work, it's like, who can I help at work? Sure, you've got like some tasks you need to complete at work, but who can I help at work? If everyone came and to work with that mentality, I mean, you'd have a pretty strong company. You know, I think um, Starbucks does a really good job at it. And the reason I say that is, you know, Howard Schultz, CEO of Starbucks, he um, he was here in town recently for a um, some type of employee thing. I don't know what it was. That's funny. I did not feel a disturbance in the force when he was... Right. <laughs> Sorry, I work at a coffee company. Coffee humor. Right? Uh-huh. But he, here's something interesting that happened. Um, just just over two weeks ago now, a really close friend of mine passed. And he's a long, he was a six-year Starbucks employee. And, you know, good guy. Worked at a lot of different areas. They, um, they send you around to different stores at Starbucks. Had made friends with a bunch of people. And I'm pretty sure that with a company as large as Starbucks or any large company, there are employees that die all the time and they may have events. They don't necessarily mention those employees. And of course, the CEO usually is not going to acknowledge that that person died or anything. But at this event, he stopped, took time, acknowledged his service, and then invited people just randomly to come up and say a few words about him and, the, and what he meant to them. He also had his girlfriend come up, gave her a hug, and told her, hey, if there's anything that you need me to do for you, let me know. And I'm like, wow, that is, that is awesome that somebody as well-known as that for a company as large as that to as take the time. As large as that. Yeah, to take the time that his people thought enough to make sure that he knew what happened and then he thought enough of his employees to stop and take that time. And I'm like, that's interesting. And because it personally affected me, because I mean, this is a long time, like high school friend, been friends for 30 years that he would take the time to acknowledge someone that I knew when he didn't have to do it. And it it wasn't a public thing where it was going to make TV. And so it was good press. It was just a good thing to do. 
And because yes. my buddy Michael hated Frappuccinos, they're uh, they're gonna do a no Frappuccino day at that Starbucks where they will not sell Frappuccinos for the entire day. And they well, actually shut down the Starbucks the day of his funeral that he worked at. They closed yeah. it for See, him. I think that's cool. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, no, I you know you have my condolences for that. I'm very sorry to hear. Um, and, but I'm not surprised to hear that someone like Howard Schultz would do something like that. And, you know, what's interesting, you said several interesting things there, one of which was, you know, there really what there, there were no cameras around, you know, maybe, and, you know, he didn't do it for the PR. Right. And again, I want, I, and I think that's great. And I think that I'm hoping that this is just the way that Howard is wired versus, you know. I hate to say this, but, you know, hopefully he didn't just read that in a business book and start, like, using it as a tactic. I really think he yeah. feels that way. Um, but what's interesting, though, again, just to go back, I'll throw this in, is that, again, I think we too often suffer from one-dimensional thinking. If there had been cameras there, you know, you're going to have the glasses half-empty people saying, well, he just did it because the cameras are there. And the glasses half-full people saying, you know, he did it because he cares. What's really interesting about it is there's a third person. The glass is completely full, and that person understands that not only was that the right thing to do for humanity, not only was that the right thing to do for business, not only was it awesome if the cameras had been there because they'll get the publicity, but you, random stranger person, actually heard it, and you feel differently about Starbucks now. So like, just acting in a decent way towards other human beings actually has admittedly an incalculable ROI. Like I have no idea how much there is no spreadsheet so it's like hey i'm talking to my accounting friends here let go you know in in this respect he made an impression upon you and just because we can't calculate it doesn't mean it's not so and you just told a story on a podcast that is being recorded that will go up on the internet and will be up until you decide this website doesn't make any sense anymore and you take it down (laughs) and so like people and businesses and leaders simply often forget how important the little things can be. The little things really matter. And in that case, of course, when he was talking to that person, to y'all, it didn't seem like a little thing at all. It seemed like he, he, he leaned in and made you feel him, you know, in your time of need. I mean, that's just fantastic. Great. Good on him. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it fits in with the theme of your book as, the company in the book changed and how they made an effort to change. Yeah, definitely. You know, uh, you know, the, in, in the book, the company is uh, called Venori Incorporated and they're a manufacturing company and they're definitely dying. And there are some reasons they're dying that you will find out as you uh, go through the book, you know, in, in the end, you know, things not to give too much away, but you know, they figure things out and, you know, I, I'm I'm quick to say in the book that you know it doesn't all get better right away. There's you know change is hard and there's going to be challenges, but yeah, I mean they 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 use a tool that I created in the back of the book called the Happy Work Agreement, and you had referred to number twelve, I think, out of these forty six commitments that I created. And so, I think for someone who maybe isn't interested in the whole mindset thing, you know, I still encourage you to get to the back of the book and read this part because it's 46 great ideas. Yeah. You, know, you might, you might not take all of them and implement them in your business, but you know, I just had a CEO here in town read it recently and I met with him just to you know hear what he thought. And he, he liked it a lot. You know, he's taken over. It's funny. He's taken over his dad's business. I'm like, Oh, this book really was for you. I mean, cause that's what goes on in mine. You know, it's a second generation owner who's frankly struggling to 
fill the shoes of the first generation owner. You know, and the guy said, I read through this happy work agreement and I just, I saw things I know I could improve in myself. I was like, fantastic. That's, I, that's exactly what I wanted you to say, you know. And so, and I've also talked with people who work for him who read the book. And she said, I, I thought of different, it, this would inspire me to treat people in a different way at work, to see them in a different light, you know, to consider their perspective when I'm asking them to do something, you know, difficult. Or if I see someone frowning, it's, you know, maybe there's a reason. Maybe they're having a hard time at home. Maybe, you know, so... I've been I've been feeling good about some of the things that people are saying about it, knowing that, you know, it, us employees, man, we go through a lot at work, but so do the managers and owners. They do. Everyone's has a hard time at work, and I think the sooner we realize that, the sooner you know we could sort of implement the Spartan model and work together, you know, and stay locked in arms and you know be undefeated. Right. Yeah. Now, you know, I started with like I'm not sure about it, but I'll, I'll tell you, I skipped to the agreement. Like when I first started reading, I was like, okay, so I, you know, I'll thumb through a book and look at the, the last part and if what the acknowledgments are and if there are any acknowledgments and what the acknowledgments say and who who you thank and who you don't thank and all that other good stuff. And I'm looking at this agreement. I'm thumbing through it. And number 24 is Venari Incorporated cannot always operate in a family-friendly manner, but we're going to try as hard as we can. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's interesting. And then I start flipping through it, and I just went back and read all of them. I'm like, okay, yeah, let me sit down and finish the book. And it's it pulls you in because the ideas that are presented here are good ideas, and you can see ways in which you can improve in your company, whether you're running the company or whether you're just someone working there. Yeah. Like not saying that something's not your job. First of all, you're an author's nightmare. For jumping around in a book. I don't know what that's all about. but um, It's the ADD, man. It's, yeah, this is not a page turner. It seems like it's a page skipper maybe. But um, no, what's interesting about the, the Happy Work Agreement too, just to tell your listeners, is I split it into three sections. So the first one is called Respect for the Work Process. And so there, you know, it's pretty self-explanatory. I want us to understand, you know, what it takes to do great work. You know, I say in the book, I say, let's care about doing great work and let's create a workplace where it's easy to care about doing great work. So admitting that, hey, life's not always, you know, we can say we want to care about doing great work, and then you work at a place full of knuckleheads, it's going to be a lot harder to care. Uh, the second section is respect for each other. I call it human solidarity. So that's where, again, I might not necessarily need a boss telling me to do something over and over and over. I owe it to the person sitting next to me to do a good job because, you know, our jobs are, you know, inextricably interlinked, basically. And then the third one is respect for business goal, number one, happiness. And so, and then in each one of those, there are sections for like where an employer is committing to the employees. And then there is a section where, you know, the employee is committing back to the employer. So like, for instance, um, let me find a good example. Like, so here, like number 13, this is an employee committing to an employer. And I say, I understand that my job is not a right nor a privilege. You know, the next one, I will show up to work on time or communicate when I can't. You know, I, this sounds silly. Like, well, of course you were told to do that. Well, like, I don't know. Why do people continually show up late? What, and it just disrespect everyone they work with because they're showing up late. Why do people say, oh, they're lucky to have me here? The, that's ludicrous. Like, you're 
you're smoking funny stuff if you think that like no you everybody is replaceable and i've i have found that out firsthand i was like <laughs> i like literally possess the passwords to log into the federal government's website to be able to draw down money uh on a on an earmark you know at a nonprofit and then all of a sudden i'm gone i'm like you don't want these passwords and they're like get out I'm like, okay, best of luck. You know, you think you're irreplaceable. You are not irreplaceable, you know? And like people, people, if people have the right to make a dumb decision, dude, they will make it. And so I'm like, okay, great. You know, I'm out of here. Don't call me if you need me, I guess. I, I, it just right. So, you know, in that respect, what I'm trying to do there, again, is just create a workplace where we realize we're all in it together, no matter what our, whatever strata we're in at work, whether it's like upper, middle, lower, Cleaning the like custodian working in the bathroom, we're all in it together. I, I think you're absolutely right, and uh, I really did enjoy reading it after I finally sat down to do it. And you're not you're not unique in that. That's how I read every book. So that's just me. <laughs> it is actually a good read, though. Uh, some are not, but this one this one this is a good read. I enjoyed it. Um, there's a lot of good advice in here and it definitely gives you a different paradigm to look at the space of actually working and being happy in what you do. It's, it's a nice read and, uh, I'm going to gift it to a couple people that I know that are having some difficulties. This, this might help change their perspective. I'm glad to hear that. You know, there was one person who read it, who I'd mentioned earlier, this story about, it just told me a story that pretty much trumped anything in my book. You know, my jaw hit the desk. I was like, what? Like, that sounds like more like a horror movie than a, <laughs> than a book about work. And so when, when that person read it, you know, I said, what? So you liked it. What did you like about it? And the person said, I just feel like my experience had a voice. So, like, they might not even have learned anything. I think you used the word cathartic earlier. Yeah. Like, sometimes that's all it takes. You know, it's kind of this thing that, like, guys struggle with where, like, our women say, I just want to be listened to. I go, well, that seems relatively worthless. Like, all you're doing is talking and I'm not helping you at all. I'm just sitting here stone-faced listening. How is that possibly helpful? I don't know. It just is. So, <laughs> so that, I'm glad to do it, you know. And so, yeah, in that respect, like, all that person wanted to hear is that someone else had also – and this is a fictitious book – but that someone else had gone through what they went through and that their experience now had a – the terrible experience they went through now had a voice. I go, wow, I hadn't considered that. That's pretty cool. No, it's awesome, man. I can't wait to uh, for to hear or read a follow up, or wait till you do the audio book. I think you have to uh, do it a little differently if you do an audio book and get actors to play the parts. That'd be awesome. I haven't heard an audio book like that yet. I know. You know, uh, I have to say, I'm kind of enjoying your voice. Maybe you could be one of the characters. <laughs> we'll see about that one. So here recently, to just to switch gears a little bit before we wrap up. I had Gary Vanderchuk on the show, and we were talking about Instagram. Yes. And you know Gary well. Um, you guys are friends. He knows you. He's been knowing you guys well, for a long time now. Yes. Since 2008. Magic year is what David Seidman Garland calls it. But um, what do you think about Instagram, and how are you using it from a social media perspective since this is the Social Strategy Podcast? Tell us a little bit about what you're, what you're doing on Instagram to promote your book. I know all the other authors out there are going to want to know. If anything, 
Yes, apologies to the listeners. We haven't been talking too much about social media. Do keep in mind, though, that uh, you know one sort of parallel between what we've been talking about and social media is getting in the right mindset. So you know, you you open up all these accounts and you're ready to go do something. And it's like not only do you need to know what you want to say, but like in what tone you want to say it and why do you want to say it. So. Um, so I, I do appreciate your listeners uh, bearing with us into this point. As far as Instagram goes, so, you know, I started a Twitter account back in 2008. It's probably been the most fun I've had on any social media platform. If you wanted to define success by number of followers, number of opportunities generated, I probably don't have a book published if I don't do the things I did on Twitter it's probably my favorite one. Then, of course, you have Facebook, and it's you know, it's just a behemoth. It has a pretty strong marketing and advertising engine. I would say uh, I have found you know the ability to place ads for both my employer and for uh, myself to be pretty strong. Instagram is photography, you know, and that's a beautiful thing. And I would say too that Instagram probably, I mean, there are some ads on it. You know, so I'll see like an ad for Lexus and then you go read in the comments and there's all these ignorant people, so, you know, do, 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 get this out of my stream. I'm like, man, you're lucky. You're not barely seeing anything at this point. I mean, wait till they really try to monetize it. It could be, we could be, we could really be in for it, you know? <laughs> so I'm like, and it's just a picture of a car. Like, relax, dude. You know, it's like not that bad. Um, I think Instagram I mean, I've always enjoyed using it because, number one, you know, it makes it makes an average photographer a little bit more interesting. And it's just it's wonderful to communicate via imagery. And so, you know, I, I remember all the arguments about how video was going to destroy Instagram. How'd that work out? I mean, you know, when, when, when Facebook bought Instagram for a billion dollars, everyone was like, what? You know, like they just got there, – there's a recent valuation that puts them over like $30 billion now. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, like that makes Facebook look like evil super genius. Like how did that happen? I mean so I, what I don't understand about Instagram as a 44-year-old versus probably the younger people who are using it is that like I use it to express myself to an audience. They use it to communicate with each other. And so it – for a time and probably still now, I mean, it almost can act as a texting service between people. Mm -hmm. And so that's something I don't really use it for. Like I express and then I leave and I come back and see how many hearts I got. Right. And so they don't really, (laughs) they get the hearts, but they're also literally communicating with each other. And what's interesting to note too, is you'll see People like me with a couple thousand followers and 40 likes on a picture and someone with 150 followers and 100 likes on a picture. There are some people who have created very tight communities uh, on Instagram, so tight that like just everything they do is being seen by all of their friends. Does that sound like Twitter to you right now? Of course. Because it doesn't, not to me it doesn't, because Twitter right now well, is the one that is, you know, it did. But now Twitter is like noise city. So Gary Vaynerchuk himself and Chris Brogan and Jason Zook, who is formerly Jason Sadler, formerly JasonHeadsets.com, and formerly Jason Surfer. <laughs> right. He's now Zook, and he's my good friend, and he's, he's staying with this name now. All three of them have independently said, the stuff I used to tweet, all things being equal, 
the stuff I used to tweet would get 50 whatevers, whether it be retweets or likes, and now it gets five. Yeah. Like Chris Brogan has 300,000 followers and he does a tweet that says, hey, so what's your podcast about? This is quite literally an invitation to advertise yourself to Chris Brogan and potentially to his followership if he decides to RT it, right? And he got like a couple responses. And then he went on, of all the ironies, he went on Facebook and said, no one, like, this is amazing to me. Like, if Twitter's your main strategy right now, he's like, best of luck. So it makes me sad that Twitter, that this is happening. What I found when I joined Caldies is I started using our Instagram account and posting stuff. And we have this, we, I mean, I've doubled the size of the Instagram account in uh, seven months, the number of followers. And like, people just love seeing pictures about coffee. And everything about it, and they just they they love getting to know our organization, and it's very easy to do with imagery. And so, I think it's a pretty brilliant service, uh, and it's definitely on the rise. Where I would say Twitter kind of feels like it's, I hate to say this, I mean, it's kind of waning a little bit. You know, you still watch TV, and so you have the two sportscasters will come on at the beginning saying, you know, welcome to AT and T Stadium, and it'll be like, you know, Troy Aikman and Joe Buck, and their Twitter handles will be under their names. Like, mm-hmm. please take note of that. I mean, that's not – they're not sticking Instagram handles there. They're not sticking Google Plus handles. You can't go – who knows where the hell they are on Facebook, but they put the Twitter handle there. This is very notable to me, but it's still – the Twitter, I just feel like it's it, – those guys are right, man. The stuff we're seeing on Twitter is just being ever so slightly ignored a little more every day, and it, it bugs me, but it is what it is. Do you think – do you think it's it's getting ignored, or you think that Twitter's just so noisy that it, it can't be seen anymore? It's a mixture, I think. So I feel like it's definitely noisy. So I used this is really funny. I used to drive down uh, Page Avenue here in St. Louis East, heading towards the highway, and there's just all these like really small businesses, you know, all with signs right by the, you know, for their businesses like right by the street. And I always used to think to myself, I wonder what life will be like when. All of these businesses use Twitter. There's a hundred businesses as you drive like a mile. And I'm like, what would happen if they all started using it? Holy cow, it would be crazy noisy. It would be like just the little grocery store and the little used bookseller and the little consignment shop, like all trying not to get to know each other, but literally just trying to sell their stuff, trying to broadcast and amplify and sell and get ROI and that's what it feels like now a little bit. Quite certainly all 100 aren't on Twitter, but it is really noisy. And so now what you're seeing, you're seeing people, smart people like Gary, definitely Chris Brogan, they have started to treat, I mean, they're hitting these platforms like a Ren and Mule, right? They are just beating them with their stuff. And that's totally fine because they, they have found that they can't get reached. They can't get engagement. Whatever they deem to be a result, they can't get it unless they repeat themselves. We used to say, like, stop spamming people. Now it's like, if you don't spam people, I mean, if you don't reach out and literally put your hand around their neck, they're not going to listen. You know, and so that's, that, that's kind of what, what Twitter has turned into a little bit. I also do think, and I think that Vine is a good example of this. You know, I've got like 600, 700 followers on Vine. I mean, I can post a Vine and like nothing happens whatsoever. Like, 700 people and not a single anything. So what's happening there, I think, is 
like the stars of Vine have taken over. So like my and I follow people in Vine, but the vast majority of the videos, if I go into Vine right now, are the people with like one million loops plus. Like mm-hmm. just it's like the so-called I call it so-called stars of Vine. Like funny videos, like seriously comically awesome videos. But so like the stars have kind of risen to the top. And so like we are just all paying attention to them. And so their accounts have gotten big enough that like that's all we see. And I think there's a little bit of that going on on Twitter too. Um, I do think also there's a completely new generation. So that and people have left Twitter, but where are the new people coming from? So you'll hear young people are using. I mean, I I do not use Snapchat. It's the uh, devil. I've said that before. I'll keep saying it. <laughs> and I'm going to finish my. I'm going to say something super quick, and I want to hear you tell. I want. I want you to tell me what you mean. There's another one called Yik Yak. I don't use it. I just heard about that. Yep. Yeah. Though. You know, you just aged yourself just like I did. I don't use it. Yeah. You're like, I just heard of it. I mean, there's like, there are like droves of children and young people using these things. And I just don't use them. Now, maybe I should use them. Maybe it's my job to know. But what's not happening is they're not coming and joining me on the services where I'm at. They're not starting Twitter accounts. They're not even starting Facebook accounts. They're using Instagram. Like, that's the one they like. And then these other ones that I don't really touch. But on Instagram, like, there's, there's not as much of an opportunity to make friends on Instagram, I guess, and, like, chat about the little things. I did say earlier that it's kind of, like, can be used as a texting service, but no one wants to text with a stranger. But, like, on Twitter, they will converse with a stranger. It's just I feel like people are treating these services differently and appropriately so, I would say. So... Yeah, Twitter's just, you know, and it's funny, too, because, like, as you get older, like, you start, you know, you start sounding a little bit more grizzled, and you're like, oh, things aren't like they used to be. (laughs) It it really feels like things aren't like they used to be. It really does feel like that. And so um, I think your question is great. I'm still trying to figure out if there's more to it than what we've already described. So, wait, why is Snapchat the devil? Well, you know, just having having teenage girls, uh, (laughs) one who's 19 and one who's 13, the the concept behind do something and it'll disappear bothers me, especially about social media, because with the advent of smartphones and cameras and everything else, the natural order of things is going to mean that someone, hopefully you hope it's not your child, is going to take an inappropriate picture and send it to someone because they think that they they, they think it's going to disappear and it very well for a while may disappear, but it's on somebody's server and it crossed against, you know, across somebody's something. All right. Let me ask you a question. I think what I hear you saying is that children. Yes. You know, or I guess what young adults, I don't know. I'm yeah. not quite there. I'm not quite there yet, but um, they have a, you're saying that what you don't like about Snapchat is the misconception. Yes. Okay. Because. I do think that, um, you know, I don't think communication needs to be eternal. Now, I just wrote a book, so I'm, like, super proud of the fact that, like, this will sit somewhere and be dog-eared, and eventually it'll be in the cutout bin, and the paper will start smelling bad. Like, I think that's cool, right? Like, this book is – no one can take this away from me. Like, even if this gets deleted from my hard drive, there's a copy somewhere, right? It's great. It's part of, like, the earth now. But communication does not need to be eternal. So – Frankly, you could look at it the other way and say that the disappearing act of uh, inappropriate Snapchat p- 
picture or whatever, at least you have a fighting chance of it disappearing forever. You know what I'm saying? I would versus hope, but, like you know, I, yeah, uh, versus like these other services where like by design they don't disappear. I demonstrated exactly how non-disappearing it is. I had a I had a teenager send me a Snapchat and then screen captured the Snapchat and sent them the text and goes, "This is permanent now, and it's wherever I want it to be. Don't send anything you don't want everyone to see." It's great advice, you know, and so, yeah, people and children do silly things. I mean, and that's why I have such a problem with it, but that's any social media. I just, I, I like that whole thing about saying Snapchat's the devil. It's just kind of one of the things. And, and, you know, I don't like Facebook. I mean, I'm one of those people that just is not crazy about Facebook and everyone knows it. I've said it on the show several times. I, I don't like Facebook. It's okay. There's a lot of people there. So it's where you have to be. If your customers are there, which is a lot of the times that's the social media advice I give. Are your customers on that platform? Do we care that kids aren't on Twitter? I don't know that I care that 16 and 17 year olds aren't going to Twitter because they're not in my customer base because they're not going to buy anything from me. If I'm selling T-shirts that have to do with pop culture, then I'm going to go on Yik Yak. Or I'm going to go on Snapchat and I'm going to make sure that I get that in front of as many eyes at the age demo that I want to that I want to attack but you know going back to something that you said about Twitter and its interaction I think it's interesting with Instagram and I think people should be focusing on Instagram just because of the impact that you can have there back on January 17th Gary Vaynerchuk who has 1.3 million followers on um Uh, 1.12 million followers on Twitter. Yep. 1.2 million, one, but whatever I just said on Twitter, he posted two pictures, one of Taylor Swift's um, new album cover. And then one of him mimicking Taylor Swift's album cover with a bottle of wine. He got 16 retweets and was favorited 62 times. He posted the same thing. And he posted this natively on Twitter, which is what people want to have done, yep. what Twitter wants you to do. They want you to post natively on their platform, so upload the picture directly to Twitter versus linking it from somewhere else. He played he, by the rules. Exactly. He did the same exact thing on Instagram. 857 people gave it a little double tap to say that they liked it, and 81 people commented on it. It's fascinating. And he only has... Like that's it's not a small number, but forty nine thousand followers on Instagram. It's apparent to me that Instagram is like the new platform because it's not as noisy and it's custom content. I'm not going to subscribe or follow a person if I don't want to see the images that they post showing up in my feed. So, I mean, you yeah, but you can play the same game on Twitter too. I, I mean, suppose, you can yeah. a, a, except a third party can retweet something and throw something into your stream that you hadn't necessarily asked for. And so, of course, if you don't like what that person's retweeting, you can curate your existence there and move on by unfollowing them. But yeah, I mean, right now, I mean, why is that happening? Why would he get like how many was on Twitter? Like, let's just say twenty, twenty, like 19, th- yeah, 19 twenty this and eight. Like 20 of this, 20 here and 800 there, plus 80 comments. Yeah. Not only that, 80 comments that are all, and this is good, 
80 comments that are all curated in one place, a la Facebook. That's what I've always said about Facebook that's actually, I think, pretty brilliant. If you put something up and the entire stream of commentary is right there, then you can read through the 80 comments and comment back on the ones that you like. I mean, on Twitter, that's like a fishing expedition. you got to work hard to go and find, like, all your different friends and what they were saying about it. And then if you comment back to them, only certain people will see it. Whereas if I comment on Gary's Instagram thing, theoretically, 80 people have the chance to see it. So... You know, and those 80 people being the ones that are like interested in the conversation because they left a comment. So, I, you know, now think about this though. Like Google Plus is the same way. I mean, Google Plus has, you know, a whole that you could see all the comments on there, but he could put it there and it'd be like crickets, right? So, I mean, <laughs> so Instagram is just more popular right now. There's where like the, as I like to call it, the warm bodies are there, you know? And so, like, if Google Plus could just get some warm bodies there and like, we it, we hung there. It could be a perfectly fine place to hang out, you know. But like, no, when you're walking down, you know, Main Street and you look in a restaurant, and there's no one in there. Like, you just probably won't go in there, you know. Or like, if there's one person in there, but the window's dirty, you're just you're not going to go into the restaurant, right? Like, we don't want to <laughs> go and like hang out. Like, it could have brilliant food, but like. You just don't want to go into a creepy restaurant where there's no music and there's hardly anyone eating. It's just like it makes my skin crawl, you know. And so, yeah, when I go to when I go to Google Plus and like say, you know, I've just been like nominated for, uh, you know, the Republican ticket for president. Like two people would probably <laughs> plus one it. Like there's nobody there listening to me. So like I haven't curated my maybe I haven't curated my proper existence over on Google Plus. There's certainly people who get plus ones. Out the wazoo for the stuff they say, but Gary is Gary. Quite obviously, you did a great show, um, albeit short. As Gary was trying to make a plane, right? But, uh, which which was that was a fun story to hear too. You know, I think he's dead on when he says, you know, keep your commitments, and when you commit to Fernand's podcast, you know, come on it. So I thought that was a really cool story. But I mean, it, it's obviously. You know, he speaks directly to him when he can say something on Twitter with 1.1 million followers and not hear much back. I can tell you that, you know, and Gary might disagree, but I'm sure he's not a I'm sure he's not tickle pink about that prospect. He worked hard to build up a fan base and now they're somewhere else. Yeah. Or they're just not paying attention to him anymore or they're not digging into the list of like influencers that like they used to go. It is mind-boggling that he can put something out and get so little traction, you know, and like, but like Katy Perry, you know, or like Kanye can say something and people swarm on it, you know, like it's the last breadcrumb to eat in the world, right? And so, you know what I mean? Like, it's like you throw, like you throw stuff to pigeons and they practically scratch each other's eyes out trying to eat it. So he, with 1.1 million followers, he's still not like Kanye. He's not like that. Like, we're just regular guys, you know, even Gary, just a regular guy. But he could go on Instagram and put something out and use the picture, you know, because that's what we're expecting to see on Instagram, right? So the better the picture. You know, he talks about that in Jab, Jab, uh, Jab, Right Hook, too, is, like, posting natively on the, the platform. So, like, there are ways to make your pictures best for Instagram, you know? And so then by the time you put it on Instagram, you're giving yourself the best chance to get the, the reach that you want. No, awesome point. I um 
I was really interested in what you thought about Instagram. It was, uh, it was, that was an interesting conversation I had with him, although be it quick, it was still very interesting. And, uh, a lot of insight came I mean, from that conversation. Vernon, I like it. And I know a few minutes ago, you mentioned the idea of, you know, like if my, if my customers are on platform X, Y, Z, then I'll go there. Otherwise I won't, you know, like I use Instagram, like I, I want to entertain others with my pictures and I entertain myself by looking at their pictures. There's definitely a business angle to it too. So like when I do the Caldi stuff, I mean, I'm just trying to show how Caldi works and what we make and who makes it, you know, and every once in a while I'll say, and this new Colombian coffee is for sale, you know, head to our, you know, site if you want to get some. But uh, but on a personal level, man, I just do it to entertain myself too. It's just fun. And then there's benefits to it too. Like you'll post a picture of your new book or something like that and hope that you get a few pre-orders out of it or whatever. But it, but there is a level of it that I where I'm not thinking about business, where I'm just enjoying myself. I think that's what makes Instagram and places like Pinterest so much easier to attract people yeah. because it's, it's entertainment and you can use it to entertain and sort of slide your business stuff in there just because. So I think the fact that they leave links out of the post right now yeah. and that you have to go to the profile in order to see the link. Yeah. I think that's what keeps them right now at an advantage because you can't immediately take someone off the platform and it's a quick hit. <sighs> Yeah, I think in web uh, design terms, they call that a leak. You know, yeah. if you've got a leak on your site, is there any chance to get someone to leave your site and potentially lose their attention? Speaking of Pinterest, what do you think about, the, you know, there are, there are some articles out right now where it says, like, Pinterest it has a problem. You know, it's still, still, like, 70-plus percent women, if not higher. So it's like Pinterest goes after the male demographic, you know, with debut of search filters and all this stuff. What do you think about this? Does Pinterest have a "Quote unquote problem," uh, I don't. I don't think they have a problem, because the the fact of the matter is, women spend more money than men online, and Dude, don't I know it? Yeah, exactly. So uh, you know, it's a, it's again one of those things. Well, who's your customer? If your customer are women, and you know, evolved men, then that's who you advertise to. Yeah, I can still subscribe to the boards that have motorcycles and cars and cigars and leather and rocks. If if I want to just see that stuff, that's what I want to see. I want to see manly stuff. Then I can subscribe to the boards that are manly. But I may actually look at some of the fashion boards if I'm shopping for the wife to keep her interested. It's like, oh, hey, t check this out. And yeah. then it's a conversation that you can have with your wife or girlfriend about something that you may not be that interested in, but yeah. she'll talk about and you're showing interest. And so, no, I don't think they have a problem. I think yeah. people feel that the platforms should, should be, you know, more, I guess, uh, democratic and serve everyone. But I think you should be as niche as you possibly can and serve the audience that best serves you. And I, I, I think with women and fitness on, on Pinterest and on Instagram, those platforms are perfect for that. Yeah, I think um, that was really smart what you said, too. I think what's happening is that in, in some cases they're like, well, we just need our numbers to be bigger. You know, we've already, you know, like drawn as much blood from the turnip as we can yeah. you know, with women. So it's like, well, it must be men, you know. Uh, to me, it just smacks of, first of all, I want to plug my food board. You got to go to, my username is Chris <laughs> Reimer. Go to food. 
you would gain weight just by looking at my food board. But uh, like, I want to cook everything on my food board and then just die a happy death. But uh, to to me, like this whole argument about Pinterest, it kind of smacks of like Joanne Fabric saying we need more men to come in. No, like, good, good luck with that. Like, you better have like a wine bar in there. I am not stepping right. foot in a Joanne's fat. It's like that's not what they do, right? Now, there's a different you know thing where you say like like Lincoln and Cadillac had a problem. You know, the, all of their customers were dying because they appealed to old people. Mm-hmm. So there is like that is an issue where you're like, okay, we probably have to change who we attract in or else we will soon be out of business, right? Women aren't going away, though. So as long as younger women are joining Pinterest and finding all of the cool stuff that they, you know, whether it be just fashion or pictures of Justin Bieber or whatever they find on here, as long as they're joining, they're good. But those, so those are two different problems, you know, like having old people be the main demo that uses your product and having them, like, slowly go away, you know, due to old age versus... Pinterest problem. So I just find that interesting. And I'm a user of Pinterest. Yeah, I use um, Pinterest, but you know, not not as often as I probably could. But <laughs> you know, for me, Pinterest is a um it's a resource when I'm looking for something in particular. So if I'm looking for a recipe or I want something good to eat, I'm like, man, I want something good to eat. I'm gonna search Pinterest and see if I can find a recipe or something that looks interesting, and then I'll find some place that sells that here locally. It's good. Or I'll run to the grocery store and go, oh, okay, there is a recipe. I need this stuff. And now I'm bookmarking that site. Now I'm going back to that site for other food recipes or I'm talking to the person on Pinterest about what they do. Or I'm looking to see if they have an Instagram and a Twitter account. And now there's a relationship that's formed because the interest was there. So I think the things that men are interested in, they'll search for and they won't for the things they're not. I just, I just think it's pundits talking just to talk a little bit. But again, these, some of these places, you know, they, there's pressure on them to, there's pressure on them to increase the number. So I, I, I guess that's what's happening, but I don't feel like Pinterest is somehow broken because more dudes like me aren't on it. That just doesn't make, <laughs> right, any, that doesn't right. make any sense to me. <laughs> well, they are advertising now, so. Are they really? They yeah, they just opened up advertising, I think, like a month ago. Huh. What's your favorite social media service? Is it Instagram? It's still Twitter. It is? I, my favorite one is Twitter, but I am really starting to love Instagram now. Are you um, Are you smelling the problems that I'm smelling on Twitter, the same thing that we just talked about? I am, and there is a, there's a particular interesting dynamic that goes on in podcasting, and it, it, it's called Twitter bombing. So because people are people and they will usually click on just about anything that comes across their their streams and on Twitter, podcasters, some podcasters are setting up multiple Twitter accounts. And this used to happen on MySpace a lot, but they're setting up multiple Twitter accounts and they're using some automation. Um, Tweet Adder is one of the one of the ones that still works to have their links for their hosting accounts be pushed out. So they'll Mm. create a bunch of tweets, 50 or so tweets, split them across 10 accounts and every hour on the hour or multiple times per hour, two or three times per hour, they're tweeting out a link to their show to the direct download link because those direct downloads then show on their, their dashboard in their host that this many people are listening to the show. And it's a good way to quickly inflate your numbers from a few hundred to hundreds of thousands, depending on how often you're doing it and how many accounts you have. So, but that's just like that's one out of 
probably 10,000 examples of the increase in noise in Twitter. Exactly. So that's like, that's what you just told me sounds like an interesting little hack or whatever, but it's like, it's making Twitter ugly. Yeah. Really, you know, and like LinkedIn's kind of going through it too. I don't know like how much you use LinkedIn or a not. Lot. Not just, you know, we're going to, I don't even know if your recording device can record this long. This is so exciting. We're, no, we're, yeah, push, we're going. We're pushing into world record <laughs> territory. I love that. We have to do part one and part two, man. Split right. it up. But uh, so on LinkedIn, it's interesting. Like I, I used to, I am basically, or used to be an open networker. So basically I would network with strangers on Twitter or on LinkedIn and get to be friends with them. So I've got tons of connections. So now what happens is like without actually seeking it out, I get tons of connection requests and I'll just get like a crap load from just not to be a jerk here, but like Caucasian-looking white people whose location is the United Arab Emirates. Like, that's the current <laughs> pattern I'm seeing. And we usually I've seen have, a like... lot of those, yeah. Yeah, but it's, like... I mean, but one time, like, two floated in, and, like, they were using the same photograph. I'm like, okay, this, you know, this is clearly fake, you know? And there's a pattern where you can see, like, they all use Gmail accounts, but they put a double number at the end of the name, so it would be, like, you know, Vernon Ross 97 at gmail.com like if you keep going to the contact and see this you can i can establish these patterns and realize that there is a massive amount of just fraudulent crap going on on linkedin (laughs) and so it's the same thing on twitter it's like yeah they it is eventually going to render it unusable or we'll just leave and we won't use it anymore i mean they're both brilliant tools but I really feel like they need to pay attention to the user experience. Going back to what we talked about a bit a while ago, they need to pay attention to their own user experience. And like, how could Twitter have not shut down that thing where like people would DM you and say like, OMG, you have to see this embarrassing thing that someone said about you click on link and you've just been hacked. And that would spread and spread and spread like crazy until everyone was hacked. How, how could they not have shut that down? Yeah, that's that. That is pretty interesting that they allow just that like, kind of stuff to go on. Or just turn off direct messages for a week. Just say, "Hey, man, we're getting hacked. This is clearly a violation of your personal information. I mean, you can take over someone's Twitter account. That sounds pretty bad. So we're going to shut down direct messages for a week. And we're going to put our best people on this, and we're going to figure it out. No, instead, it just keeps happening. You know, and so then you get. Even people who are strong and we're like, I'm not clicking on one of those things. They'll get one of the direct messages from someone they really, really know. Like like you and me just talked and then tomorrow you get a DM from me and then whoops, you click on it and you're hacked. It's just like I feel like they'd – you were talking with a mutual friend on, on Facebook about this, about like you know what do these services really owe us because they're free you know, versus what do we owe them? What is, the, what is the relationship there and like what can we expect? Should we be offended when we start seeing ads? Should we be offended if there's a small user fee? You know, what should we be, what can we, or should we be offended by how much freedom do we have to just move on to something else? You know, like there's, there's one service in particular where I really feel like they've got me in a noose and it's Gmail, right? Like, yeah, it's all in there. Like if Facebook goes away, it's like, geez, there's like stuff in there and I'll, I'll be sad and stuff. I'm, I'll pour some out for the homies that aren't here anymore or whatever. But like if Gmail goes away, (laughs) like if I had to start paying for Gmail, I mean, there is so much Rhymer intelligence in there. Like, there's stuff. Like, it would be disastrous. So, like, wouldn't it be interesting if Google finally said, okay, it's been however many years and 
We just took it out of beta, you know, a little Google joke there. And finally, <laughs> we need you to pay a buck a month. I mean, there'd be like pitchforks in front of Google headquarters, man. Yeah. People would be go crazy. And you can pay for Google. But like if you made people pay, I mean, what does Google owe us at this point? What's your thought on that? They can charge anytime they want. They can force. Yeah. And, they sh- and it's their platform. And if they decide yeah. that the, the revenue model they want to go after is a is a subscription fee, which they have so many other ways to make money. So I think it's unnecessary. Right. Uh, I think Gmail is is their jab to to reference Gary's jab 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 right hook. That's good. Where you're you're giving value to give value to give value, so that when you do ask for it or you do throw in the right hook, that it's not unexpected and it's not a stretch for people to get you to go ahead and buy it from you. All right. Let me ask you some specific questions. Would you blame them if they said? It's $1 per month per Gmail account. No, no questions asked. Would no, you blame them? Not in the least bit. Would you agree that the literal ability to make a decision is not the same thing as the advisability of making the decision? Ooh. I think I would agree with I that. I mean, I, I can go smack my kid right now. It doesn't make it a good idea. Right. Right? Like, yeah. So, I mean, I, mean, I, I should I go do that. And there are literally rules against doing that. But, like, I'm the big guy. You know, I can – like. Google's the big guy. They could smack me in the face. It doesn't mean it's a good idea. Oh, very true. So, so I, th- yeah. I think that's what you said, where they correctly realize that it's their jab, and there's other ways that they, they swing plenty of right hooks at us these days. So I think it's right. okay. But just because they can make the decision doesn't make it a good one. That's that People struggle with that in it, not just these big social media companies, but in business all the time, you know? They're like, well, this person clearly violated the rules. They have to be fired. And it's like, well, what if you didn't fire them? What if you just sat down and said, look, man, not again, okay, or like just <laughs> right, or, right. Write, write them up in the classic human resources sense. I mean, we make decisions all the time because we have the power to do so. It doesn't mean it was the right decision. So people don't think about their lives in a solution-based way. They think about it in like, it is my right to, you know, it was, you know, it was Gary's right to take the Wall Street Journal call. You're not quite Wall Street Journal yet, right, Vernon? I mean, not he could have taken no, the. He no, not, taken, quite not quite yet. Yeah, we got a couple months. He he could have taken that call. It was a literal right to do so. Did not make it a good decision. So he made the right decision. You know, so I think people get tripped up on that all the time. They, no, I mean, that's a good point. I think you're right. And yeah, I mean, they could charge. Should they charge? Probably not for that service because they have other services that they can charge for to you know monetize their platform. But I think it's a uh, I think it's a bad decision for as users to expect that something that costs money to run and a lot of money to run because you're serving millions of people that you have no right to make money from your platform. Agreed. Agreed. And I actually talk about that in the book, too. Remember, I said, like, it's very silly to assume that, like, owners of businesses and entrepreneurs who have put massive capital at risk and largely designed the business come up with the idea and design it, you know, don't deserve to make a little bit more money than you. Right. I mean, it's just like the thinking in that way, you know, being bitter about their quote unquote success when it comes to money is counterproductive. It's just totally counterproductive. The reason we started talking about this though, was that, um, that post I did on Facebook about, about Twitter, where Twitter sent out a note to, uh, some of their more influential users saying, it would be best if you posted photos natively in Twitter as opposed to sending Instagram links to Twitter. Uh, and what's interesting about that is Twitter is correct to say that a tweet is probably a little bit more interesting if a photo shows up natively in the feed 
versus a link to Instagram. And my point in the post was I might not really be posting a link or a picture on Twitter because I want you to see a picture. I might be posting a link to Instagram on Twitter because I want you to come over and hang out with me on Instagram because people like you and Gary Vaynerchuk and just my own two eyes are seeing that Instagram is on the rise. So I want to see if I can get some of my Facebook friends or my Twitter friends to come over and join me on Instagram. And I know there was one point where I think it was our mutual friend Jen Cloud had said, uh, there's a lot of comments in here, so I'll try to paraphrase as best I can. But she was basically like she thought it was a bummer that Twitter was making this overture to their fans. They just I think what she was saying is like it and I have to agree with her to some degree. It feels a little awkward to be told how to use their service. It, it does. I, you know, I um, I didn't take it that way at first. Right. I thought about it. I was like, well, I guess you're kind of right. It was maybe they don't say that publicly that, hey, we would prefer for you to use this this way. But I think that what they should have done and what they could have done is to let everyone know that, hey, photographs work best natively in here. So instead of using other services, try doing this instead. Yeah. And make no, it better. I'm with you on that. You know, and so Twitter, like they, they added um, – filters you know like yeah. a year or two i lose track of time but they added filters and so they started adding some you know instagrammy type stuff right. but what's but what's interesting is is like most people i think gary vaynerchuk calls it people's bullshit detector and so people's bs detectors are pretty strong and so when they read these missives from twitter they get what twitter's getting at you know they're they're in a gigantic Organic corporate battle with these other behemoths to you try to you know, <laughs> capture or retain or stop the slippage of mind share and literally the number of users. They're, the, they're publicly traded now. This is a different ballgame, and you should, we can't pretend that it's not. So when it comes down to people posting to their Twitter a link to Instagram, that's a leak. Yeah, it's it a leak, really man. Is. I'm about to bust over to Instagram. And oh, by the way, I don't know about you, but once I get on any social media site, like I spend a little too much time on it. Like it's just like it starts to grab you in and like that laundry will fold itself, I guess. I'm just going to keep doing <laughs> social media. It's like this is not – no, it won't. And then all of a sudden you're like sleeping in bed with a bunch of laundry you didn't fold. It's like this is not normal. So – you know, it's it's interesting how you know they don't want people going over to Instagram. They don't like Instagram. They don't. These guys are like I said, in believe it or not, most likely cutthroat behind the scenes battles. You know, to so it is for some reason they don't feel like it's a good idea to play nice with each other, and so they won't. Very true, and I think that is a good point for us to wrap it up, man. This was a good conversation. I enjoyed this. It's just so good to talk to you, and I'm glad that we smashed the world record for your pod. I can't. I, I assume no one else talked for an hour and twenty minutes, or however long, hour no. and thirty minutes. No, hour and thirty. I think. Let's see who. No, no. Just give me the record and just call think, it. Yeah, it's it's make me feel good because we could keep going. We could, but <laughs> we could, but like I, I'm probably gonna pass out here in a minute. I don't know. Yeah, we can keep going. No, it's been fun. I actually might split it into the social media part and the happy work book part. See, now this will this will be a fascinating place. See, I see if you can find a good place to split. We did we did talk about the book for like maybe half the time. So yeah, we, we transitioned well. I you know I think it's a uh, it's with podcasts for me. I, 
if Joe Rogan can do three hours in one podcast, I can have one that's an hour and 30 minutes long. You know, I think we were interesting. We'll find out, I guess. But I, you're, <laughs> yeah, hey, you're the big cheese, so do what you want. If you want to split it in two, I'm all for it. Um, no, I was just hey, kidding. Can I tell listeners where to like find me and stuff? That was going to be the next thing is let's tell well, everybody where to find you. If anyone has been brave enough to listen to the very, very end of this, I am Chris Reimer, and you can find me on Twitter at Chris Reimer. It's R-E-I-M-E-R, and I am the same on Facebook. On Facebook, it's facebook.com uh, slash Chris Reimer. And, but most importantly, happyworkbook.com. And there are links to major booksellers everywhere on my site. And I would love for you to pre order my book. It comes out February 17th. So we're, uh, we're, we're approaching the big day. So uh, any, any and all pre orders would be greatly appreciated by me. Yes, go out and pre order the book. We got to make this one a New York Times bestseller. Thank you so much, my friend. It's been uh, it has been a blast to talk to you. Yeah, it's been fun, man. I really did enjoy it. Next time, man. We'll see you. Okay, that was awesome. I had fun, and it's a slight departure for the podcast. Usually, we're talking about business and going off and doing your own thing, and you know how you got started, and you know what's this amazing story behind how you've done this and now gone on to make a million dollars and stuff like that. But with this one, we really focused on the quality of work. And I think that that's important because not all the time are you going to be able to start your own thing. And you may not want to. That might not be your thing. Maybe you're happy where you are, happy holding down a nine to five, but you want to know how to make it a better place. Something I think that was interesting and that really brings it all together for the Happy Work book is a quote that Chris said that let's care about great work and let's create a workplace where it's easy to care. I mean, that's just powerful and it's really the type of environment that everyone truly wants to work in. I really did appreciate Chris coming onto the podcast and I hope that you guys really enjoyed this really long marathon episode. We talked about Snapchat and Yik Yak and all kinds of stuff. And you know, one of the things about having a successful workplace is what are you doing as far as your personal development is concerned? What are you learning? How are you improving what you currently are doing? Lynda.com can help you with that. If you go out to Lynda.com forward slash Ross, R-O-S-S, you know, like my Twitter name, Ross PR, just take the PR off. So forward slash Ross, that's lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A.com forward slash Ross. You can get a 10-day free trial on the podcast. I'm really interested to see how you guys are taking advantage of Lynda. Take advantage of the 10-day free trial. It's an awesome offer. I'm really happy to have them on the podcast because I've used this site for years to skill up when I needed to do stuff, whether it was figuring out CSS on my own website or doing something for a client. This site has been invaluable to me, and I really am glad that I am having the opportunity to share it and actually recommend it. Hashtag 10daysalinda.com. You can find that on Twitter. Just search for that hashtag, and you. I want to see the tweets and what you guys are doing with it. I really did enjoy this episode. I want to know what you guys are doing with Snapchat and Yik Yak and Instagram. So let me know. Remember, follow me on Instagram, instagram.com forward slash Ross PR. You can find me pretty much on the web anywhere at Ross PR. Just search for it. I'll pop up all over the place. Email me, Vernon at VernonRoss.com. I apologize that this episode has gone so long, but it's a lot of good information. If Joe Rogan can do three hours, I think we can do almost two. So anyway, guys, I'm going to go ahead and get out of here, and I will see you in the next episode.